Hello, and welcome to the NVIDIA AI Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Kravitz. Energy has been in the news a lot lately, and with good reason. Between climate change, political efforts by the Biden administration to incentivize and increase uses of renewable and alternative energy in the U.S. and throughout the world, and, well, let's face it, the early and intense weather and heat waves going on in the United States already, as we tape this in late June, energy, our access to energy, and perhaps the lack thereof, is a hot topic, no pun intended, for everybody on the planet. We have two guests today who are experts in the field of energy and renewable energy in particular, and they're here to talk about how AI is playing a big role in the work that they do. Joining us today from GE Renewable Energy are Danielle Merfeld and Arvind Rangarajan. Danielle is the CTO of GE Renewable Energy, and Arvind is a technical leader in the Advanced Manufacturing Organization. Danielle also recently led a session at GTC Digital entitled Advances in Renewable Energy, Enabling Our Decarbonized Energy Future with Technology Innovations and Smart Operations. Danielle and Arvind, thank you both so much for taking the time to join the NVIDIA AI podcast and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I gave a very brief, uh, I didn't want to take up too much time, a very brief sort of glossed over um, kind of layman's approach to why renewable energy is important. But now that we're into it, let me ask you, Danielle and Arvind, um, what is renewable energy? What does GE Renewable Energy do? Um, and what are your roles in, in the process, in the organization? And then we can kind of dive in from there. Yeah. So um, at a high level, renewable energy is just as it sounds, it's energy that you create through renewable resources such as wind and solar and you know energy resources that are refreshed continually so that um, you will never have to pay for it. <laughs> you do have to harness it. Um, and it's generally almost exclusively carbon free. So that's why renewable energy is so important because it aligns with the decarbonized energy sector future. And of course, lots of lots of um, visibility around the need for that lately. Um, our renewable energy business sells a lot of different types of renewable energy generators, such as onshore wind, offshore wind. We sell um, systems around solar and storage, even hydropower. And we also have a portion of our business that serves the grid. And you might not realize this, but as we put more and more of this variable energy, variable renewable energy like wind and solar on the grid, it just behaves differently. So mm -hmm. now we have to operate the grid differently. So we sell a lot of equipment, uh, both hardware and software onto the grid and have some key experts in how the grids operate. And we're kind of managing that transition um, from generator all the way through transmission and distribution in GE's renewable energy business. And so does GE sell um, exclusively uh, business to business or do you sell uh, sort of home and residential and consumer solutions as well? We are exclusively um, commercial scale to utility scale. GE um, doesn't have that uh, consumer level appliances or or even right. um, you know any of the businesses, light bulbs, all the things that people remember about GE from yes. 50 years ago. <laughs> We're not in those businesses anymore. Got it. Got it. Okay. I can relate a little bit, though, to, to what you said, and perhaps others listening can as well. Uh, last year, we had solar panels and uh, a home battery storage solution installed where I live. And, you know, there were kind of two phases to the work. One was actually having the equipment, you know, the system designed and installed in our house. And the other was connecting up to the grid. And so just to get back to your point about adding renewable solutions of whatever sort to the grid kind of changes 
the way the grid operates. Can you maybe just quickly kind of get into that and kind of loop back to decarbonization and what that means? Yeah, I mean, probably the easiest way to describe um, the difference in terms of how the grid operates is that today, a lot of the grid functionality and, you know, ways that it manages faults and thinks about managing stability and reliability is based on the operation of synchronous generators. So big steam turbines, gas turbines, hot things that spin <laughs> creates inertia. And that's it's it's a very elegant, almost foolproof design for how to keep a, you know, dampening in the system and keep this very complex um, uh, engineering feat balanced and, and safe and reliable. The problem is, is when you move to power that's coming onto the grid through power electronics and not through um, rotating machines that create a sine wave of, of AC energy, now things happen faster. Mm. Uh, they have The changes can happen faster. It's actually a good thing if you use it to your advantage because it's highly programmable and shapeable, but it's also volatile because you're you're waiting for the wind or the sun to do some of their work, and then you've got to transform it into something that can be safely put on the grid. So again, it's just different, and that's why that would require a new set of rules and a new set of how utilities operate those systems. It's not worse, it's just different. And any kind of change is, is tough sometimes for a system, but it's the, it's the right change to make to enable this carbon-free future. And how far, before we get into the specifics of how you're using AI and other technologies um, to make this whole process better, how far, I don't know if you can quantify this, but how far are we into, and when I say we, uh, you tell me if that means the United States or the world or, you know, port, we talk about the grid, but I don't know if the grid is really multiple grids linked together. But what's a, what's kind of a metric so people can understand how far we are into the process of harnessing renewable energy or maybe changing the way, um, you know, that we've done things to something better? That's a great question because it helps provide the context that so many people um, don't have and maybe don't even realize that they need to have because um, it highlights some big issues. So if you look out and typically like the International Energy Agency uses 2050 as the guiding point in time when we by then we need to have already been in a zero carbon energy system. And that means electricity is part of that. Today, electricity is only about 20 percent of the energy in the world. But it's the easiest to decarbonize because you can use re renewable energy in electricity. So there's two things that need to happen in the next 30 years. We need to decarbonize as much of that electricity as we can. And we need to make things that today use fuel or fossil-based resources electrified so that they can also then use some of that decarbonized energy. Um, so the goal that the International Energy Agency has set is to reach this um, net zero energy sector by 2050, it means that we're going to have to have about 88% of our electricity from renewables. Okay. And that means wind, for example, would have to be about 40% of that. And today, wind is about 8% mm. of that. And, and not only is it going to have to go from 8 to 40%, the total amount of electricity is going to be increasing, some would say, between 50 and 100%, just to manage all those other sectors that are coming in to become electrified. So we'll need more electricity to manage more sectors going electric? Yes. Yeah. Although okay. overall, the, the total energy will come down slightly right, because right, right. things are so much more efficient when you move them to electric. Right. And not to put you on the spot, but I would be remiss not to ask because there's so much that I think people don't understand. It's, it's easy for, you know, somebody like me who I mentioned, you know, I was bragging about my solar panels and whatnot and to say, you know, you need to get solar too at your house and you should 
give up your gas car and get an electric car and do all these things. How much of it is individuals? How much of it is, you know, large organizations or corporations? How much of it is the world governments? You know, what do we need to do or, or which which bodies need to act to get us to where we need to go? Yeah, so it's pretty clear now that technology is not the hurdle. We have the technology we need to move forward decades into this transition. Um, it's a lot of policy, not to make it financially accessible. It already is the cheapest energy on the planet. That's good news. Mm -hmm. um, but to increase the rate of permitting and to reduce the policy hurdles to get more of this at the country scale. So in terms of individual versus big corporate or country or government level influence, it's definitely the latter. Okay. You know, we, we, we can't make the progress that we need to make on an individual level. We've got to make decisions as a society about where we want to have our energy come from. Got it. Well, I will continue to pat myself on the back for having solar panels. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> you know, Good but, job. But yes. All right. So let's get into, uh, it's the AI podcast after all. Let's get into uh, what GE Renewable is is doing or how you're using AI to make your products and your services better throughout the whole life cycle of making renewable energy more of a reality. So I thought maybe I could set up some of the scenario about what makes renewables need this. And then I'll pass it over to Arvin. He can give you some of the details, maybe an example of, of how we're doing that. Perfect. So it's important to know as we're seeing this huge demand spike and as we're trying to increase the scale of all of the wind, for example, of renewable energy that we're putting out there is that, you know, costs are going to continue to drop. There's this pace of innovation we have to keep up with. Um, and we have to design these systems to last for a long time. Like a typical wind turbine is has a 40-year life, and mm -hmm. it's got to survive these wind conditions that we don't get to control. Right. And it's got to make power efficiently throughout that whole life. And the volume of these assets is growing, and we're changing them. So there's a bunch of different types of systems in the field. So we have to think about how to manage this really complex environment through this life cycle and we're doing that by using AI really across the whole range. We can use it in the engineering and design, in manufacturing, and in servicing, this whole kind of complete life cycle of our products. But there's a couple things that, are, that make renewables quite different from where we typically see AI applied. And one of them is just the most clear is that we have really small data sets that we're using. This is not about flooded with data and sifting through right. to learn, you know, to get those nuggets it's about finding the needle in the haystack. Mm. You know, we're, we're training on flaws in the manufacturing facility or in the service, you know, looking for wear on a turbine blade. And that's our most common problem in this domain is dealing with these very few data points. And so typically we're used to training the data so that they can better help a human in the loop. Mm -hmm. So okay. our approach and then how we're using them are quite different. So maybe I can pass it over to Arvind to give you some more context and examples there. Sure. Uh, thanks, Daniel. So I think, you know, Daniel kind of hit the key point, right, is typically we are designing these products to be extremely stable and, and run for a long period of time. Uh, but we also don't want to have any defective products go in the field. So, for example, when we are trying to design an a AI-based system to find defects on a blade, I mean, our processes are good enough that we don't generate a lot of defects that we can actually use to train an AI model effectively. So we don't make like millions of defects right, right. that we ship out today, right? So, right. Which is a good uh, thing. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So so and we are very focused on it, but we also want to avoid the 
defect escapes. So that's where we think you know AI can play this role because again we have so few of these defects. It's hard to find and train people over a period of time where they can actually get really good at spotting these defects. So we see AI playing kind of this niche role in terms of uh, being able to train with these small data sets, but have enough understanding that it can find anomalies that then people can actually make a better decision on. So uh, this is kind of where we feel that, uh, you know, it's it's going to be augmentation of, you know, what people do today by using AI. So we don't, at least in our domain, we don't see this immediately replacing people, but it's going to help people find that needle in the haystack that uh, Daniel had talked about. So when you say a, a manufacturing defect on a wind turbine blade, a couple questions come to mind for me. How big are the blades? What does a defect look like? And then if there is a defect that that isn't caught and it's out in the field, what's the impact and, and what do you have to do? Because uh, I'm imagining that, um, you know, if, if you're putting a company like GE is putting these resources behind um, training on these very small data sets to find what sounds like not that many defects, but to improve them, they must be pretty high stakes uh, situations. That's right. Yeah. So it's a good question. Components are really, really big. I mean, anything we, so we look at wind turbines that range from, you know, 40 meters in length to up to 107 meters, which is our largest blade that's uh, in our offshore turbines. That's a, that's a football field, an American football <laughs> field, a European <laughs> football pitch. It's yeah. yeah, that's a big blade. Yeah. Plus the end zones, right? Right, plus the end zones. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so what we are trying to do, and if you look at the surface area, that's like, you know, uh, it's like a good four or five meters across as well. So we are trying to find, you know, like small three, five millimeter size deep defects on things that are hundreds of square meters. Right. And uh, so that's, you know, the the example I use just to give the scale is, you know, it's like trying to find a penny on like a wooden floor in a 2,000 square foot house, right? <laughs> so that's basically what you're looking for in this, and it doesn't happen often. Right. And if there is a defect, does it reduce generation capacity? Does it bring the whole system down? Um, what What does a, a tiny little defect on a huge blade like this do? Yeah, so it, it, it's about uh, how much design margins we get to have on our blades. Okay. So, depending on how accurately we can capture the defects, as long as we can capture you know, defects above a certain size, we can take some factor of safety in our design. Right. So we know that those defects are going to be smaller. So it's not going to really do anything catastrophic like, <laughs> uh, if they have an escape, but it's around having that guaranteeing that life that Daniel talked about. You know, these right. turbines run right. for 20 years, 40 years. So if we can find every defect that is over that size, then uh, we should basically have no trouble in terms of running the wind turbine for its uh, life. Right. So talking about how you're training data sets and deploying them, and uh, you know, you mentioned kind of having a unique approach, can you get a little bit more into what that process has kind of been like and, and maybe some of the challenges or learnings you've had um, as you've kind of deployed and tweaked your use of AI? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, we kind of started with, uh, you know, some pre-trained models. Uh, that have been used on image data sets as kind of a starting point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we evaluated different architectures. And then what we realized was we were having a lot of overfitting issues, simply because, I mean, it's we just have such few data sets. We tried to incorporate uh, synthetic data. 
And then what we realized was one thing we could do to increase kind of the data sets was to start doing some of these training data images in the lab setting and then incorporate it into the data set we are actually getting from the factory itself to kind of maybe accelerate the data set. And we came up with some techniques to you know, leverage the lab data in conjunction with kind of synthetic data and the factory data to uh, build up a model that is more accurate than just relying entirely on the factory data. Right. So, yeah, and th this has kind of helped us kind of move the needle in terms of the accuracy that's required for it to be uh, relevant in the factory setup today. And is this all happening in, in one centralized place as far as um, gathering the data and using it and, and the humans in the loop and everything? Or is this kind of distributed across different maybe labs or manufacturing facilities or even out in the field? So in our case, the actual system kind of makes local decisions, but the deployment of the system is going to be global. So we essentially expect to, you know, once we do all the required validation with the quality team, the goal is to actually roll it across all our factories, and uh, which means that, you know, we are going to have an edge-based system that's doing all the inferencing, but, you know, we're going to be continually updating the model uh, that we are then going to distribute from a central location to these individual nodes that are in independent factories. Beyond the manufacturing process, are there other places, I know that GE Renewable provides a lot of services, are there other places where uh, AI and, and the human-in-the-loop approach that you mentioned are also uh, coming into play and providing a benefit to your work? Sure, yeah. So, you know, we, we talked about, you know, defects not leaving the manufacturing floor, but, you know, we really can't control once the, you know, turbines are in the field or our products are in the field how the natural forces interact with it, right? So I'm specifically thinking about something like a lightning strike. Right. And I mean, right. we basically have so many lightning strikes around and, and these farms tend to be in kind of the tornado alleys and, you know, places where yeah, you right, get a lot right. of lightnings and thunderstorms. So one of the things we do have to do is to kind of periodically inspect turbines and, and ensure that, you know, they are safe to continue operating. So mm -hmm. there are these inspections that we do with, you know, really sophisticated uh, infrared cameras uh, that can take up to, you know, 3,000 frames of, you know, images to kind of try and find these defects when the blade is still spinning. Right. So one of the things we have to do is, you know, to try to go over that, over the entire length of the blade, is going to take hours and hours for yeah. an inspector, right? Yeah. And and uh, so one of the things that AI is enabling us to do, and, and this is work done by the team at GE Research, uh, is to be able to kind of take those 3,000 images and apply AI to filter it down into maybe 20 critical frames where we think there might be a defect. Right, right, right. right. So, so we get this, you know, 50x reduction in how the, uh, you know, the, what the field uh, inspector needs to do to kind of try to spot these defects. Right. Instead of instead of trying to follow a, a giant blade spinning at super high speeds, they can look at 20 images that were pre-selected by the AI, right? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's another place where the human in the loop, so, you know, we're, again, we, we don't have enough defects to be able to fully train and have like an autonomous AI that's scanning, which is our future vision. But but today, this again, with this AI supplemented by human in the loop is, is you know, really uh, doing a great job of providing value for us in the near term as we kind of build the knowledge base and, and the capability to start doing autonomous decisions. 
Absolutely. It's, we, we hear a lot of, a lot of success stories or, you know, their stories being written for sure, but a lot of success stories about that using the AI to augment the human, human in the loop, you know, kind of giving the person almost, uh, superpowers, if you will, um, versus, you know, it's not a, all right, we've built the system. We can fire everybody and let the computers run things. It's that, that's not where we're at. Yeah, exactly. Our guests today are Danielle Murfeld and Arvind Rangarajan of GE Renewable Energy, and we're talking about their use of AI and their approach to um, using AI and humans in the loop. We're speaking specifically about manufacturing defects in wind turbine blades, but really to improve across their diverse portfolio of uh, renewable energy products and solutions that they deploy globally. So we've been talking both kind of at a high level about what renewable energy is and um, the different ways that uh, it's being deployed or, you know, replacing or working to replace, you know, fossil fuels, if you will, and and energy sources that aren't renewable and aren't sustainable and put carbon back into the world, which is not what we want. Got into a little bit to the specifics about how you're using AI to train on these small data sets, but kind of going back to the big picture What's next? And I want to kind of fold into that if maybe there have been any surprises anywhere along the way, whether it's in terms of how energy behaves or how you know humans behave around energy or what have you, uh, and then kind of leading into what GE Renewable is working on or maybe where the next big opportunities might lie. I'll just add one surprising thing for me, just as a leader in the energy space, um, especially as a technology leader in the energy space, is how much this is not just a technology issue. You know, there's a ton of opportunity in the technology realm, um, especially for AI to help us with, you know, understanding and better managing our factories, our service plays, even our designs. But what I'm what I'm now realizing a lot more, especially as I think of how this interacts with the grid, is that there's, you know, there's real market challenges to how do you design systems where the cost of fuel is free and most of our energy systems are based on deployed costs that are variable, really based on fuel costs. And then what about operating our systems differently? You know, it's not just about the new invention of the wind turbine versus a steam turbine. It's about they they have completely different behaviors on a system. So there's like a whole new realm here of behaviors and operations and markets and physics that um, I think it's almost, you know, boundless opportunities to be bringing intelligence to these challenges. Well, it's interesting, uh, and this this may just, likely it speaks to our relative levels of expertise, although it may speak to my my personality. But as you were talking, I was thinking, oh gosh, these sounds like problems. And you uh, cast them as opportunities. Um, you spoke, you know, previously, Danielle, about the technologies here, the, the policy uh, is where issues you know, present, or maybe a better way to say it is that, you know, there are policy changes and new policies that need to be implemented. Leaving that aside for a second and talking a little bit about the technology, are there things that you're working on now, and and bonus points, obviously, if you're using AI to try to grapple with them, um, that can address some of the challenges you're talking about in um, bringing these newer, you know, sort of variable, I think you called them energy sources, onto the grid and doing whatever needs to be done to help the grid adapt. So I'll mention two, one that we're working on and one that we really think needs more work. Um, and we want to sort of grow that space, but it's it's not something that we're uniquely focused on. The first is um, what I'll call grid forming controls. So this is really just like a control system for any asset. It's like the brains of the system. 
This is one for how do you integrate the energy going on to the grid? As I mentioned, the way it has behaved in the past is all based on this very elegant synchronous um, generator design. Right. And using your converters and inverters, now you can shape that to be whatever you want it to be. And it can be very quick, but also faults happen quicker and flaws in the system, harmonics, they, they can arise more quickly and that's harder to deal with. One of the things that we're doing is helping that converter or that inverter that's now hooking up to the grid because it's how the wind and solar power are getting onto the grid. We're giving that the ability to maintain um, the grid voltage or the frequency, which are the two really important factors of that AC signal on the grid. We're giving it the ability to form instead of follow the grid. Mm. So it, it is today that most of the wind and solar electricity that goes onto the grid is sort of in a following mode. Its, its role on the grid is just not to screw up things around it. Right. <laughs> it doesn't right. add a lot of value. Okay. And in this new paradigm, we're figuring out how to make it improve the grid around it better because it's there, not in spite of it. And I think that's a really exciting new space for enhancing you know, the, the value of renewables even more. And the second thing I would add, just because it's so cool, and this is not a big focus for us today, but I think it's generally going to be needed to help accommodate increasing renewables, is what's called demand response. So you can imagine a world where you have you put a lot more renewables on the grid, but remember, you don't always get to control that fuel. In fact, mm -hmm. you never get to control that fuel. <laughs> so um, on so you, typically that means you have to overbuild because on the days when you have lighter sun or wind in different regions, you're going to hope you had extra right. in other parts. One way to reduce that overbuild or that overcapacity is by being able to dial down the demand every once in a while in different parts and doing it in a way that people don't even notice or that doesn't inconvenience companies, factories, homes. That's the holy grail because then you reduce this uh, capacity that's needed to serve the community of load. And many people don't realize this, but there's no inherent storage in the grid. We make right. electricity and it is consumed instantaneously. There's no extra. Right. So you have to make it when you need it. And when you need it, you better make it. <laughs> so being able to manage both sides of that equation for the first time in the grid's history will be a big lever of, of opportunity for us as well. But I think the next frontier for how AI could be used in the renewable space is, is really around that resource itself. For example, the wind, you know, mm -hmm. getting better models and being able to use them in, in highly compute intensive environments around what does that wind profile look like? Not just when it's propagating into the front of that wind farm of hundreds of, of turbines, but as it propagates through the farm, you know, what are the wakes? How are those eddies impacting the turbines behind it? And we can use that information to operate the farm much more effectively, right. but getting that information is really tough. So, and again, if we can do this well, not only could we operate the farm better, but theoretically we could use it to build a broader sort of predictive capability to manage the grid. The grid should know what to expect from that resource, knowing what the weather is like and the sun and the wind, um, and be able to manage those that opportunity to create energy in a very, very different way than we we do much more passively today. Do either of you get a chance to get out to the wind farms? As you're talking about it, I'm, um, I mean, obviously the technology is what we're here for, but I'm thinking about what it must be like to be on a wind farm full of hundreds of turbines. Have you experienced that? Yes, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I would say I have more experience with our prototypes where I've gotten, you know, the only right, right, right. turbines I've gone up have been at the prototype sites and I didn't get to go up our offshore wind turbine. It is at a port, so I could have, but it was not a time I could go up. But right, right. It's just feats of engineering that are awe-inspiring. Yeah. Makes you feel very small. Yes, I can only imagine. 
I've been to a wind farm in in Texas with with tons of turbines. You know, you you think about the fact that you know the wind farm is positioned there means that you know you expect it to be a very windy area. Mm-hmm. But I, I was there in Texas in October, and I did realize what you know a consistent thirty mile an hour wind feels like, right? Because <laughs> you 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 don't. I mean, you, you live in like suburban areas like where I do now in upstate New York. You 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 get wind once in a while, but it kind of dies down. Right. But I mean, it, it's something to be there for like, I don't know, like six hours and the wind just is nonstop. It's just nonstop. And because, yeah. because we're trying to do some trials, they took us to the windiest part of the farm. <laughs> so it, it, it was some experience. So that's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's something that's unforgettable. So if somebody gets a chance, yeah, you should go see it. It's- Very cool. And I was going to mention this, but Arvind, since you mentioned upstate New York, I have to end with a shout out to the Schenectady Capital District, Niskayuna area. Big GE, uh, big GE town. I grew up there. I, I haven't lived there for years and years, but I know that uh, you both have ties to the area. And I, I won't ask you to, to get into it, but just to say shout out to GE, Schenectady, Niskayuna High School. We'll leave it at that. For folks who would like to find out more about what GE Renewable Energy is up to, broadly, specifically to the use of AI, uh, Danielle and Arvind, are there places on the internet uh, where people can go? Yes. So we have our own renewable energy webpage. So GERenewableEnergy.com. That's kind of the one-stop shop for all of our um, information. But, you know, we're also pretty active on social media. You can follow our accounts from our businesses. I have a pretty active Twitter presence at DW Merfeld. So it's pretty easy to get me um, DW Merfeld, GE, I think it is. Great. And then, of course, there's the GTC talk I alluded to at the top from uh, GTC digital, I believe it was in April of this year, 2021. Uh, and you can just look for Danielle's name, Merfeld, M-E-R-F-E-L-D, on the NVIDIA site uh, and get to that talk as well. Uh, Danielle and Arvind, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. And, um, you know, I, I say this to everybody and I mean it, but in this case, we're talking about renewable energy in the future of the planet. So sincerely, all the best of luck uh, to both of you and your teams and the work you're doing. It's, it's incredibly important. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.